Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, our ancestors were approved. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved of his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it's impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen, and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received the power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. And therefore, from one man, in fact, from one good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. And all these died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were talking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. And by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac because he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead and therefore he received him back, figuratively speaking. 
By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come by Jacob. When he was dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph. And he worshiped, leaning on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin for he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward by faith he left Egypt behind not being afraid of the king's anger for Moses persevered as one who seeks him who is invisible by faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites by faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who had disobeyed. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Time is too short. Well, we've got time. And friends, today we're going to be thinking about just one of the dudes in this list from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, and why they make this list, since we've got time. But before we start, I haven't forgotten to bless you. I bless you in the name of Jesus to know Jesus even more wonderfully today. I bless you to receive healing in your body and in your mind and in your emotion and in your spirits. I bless you to uh, flourish, uh, receiving guidance and help from God, no matter what challenges or circumstances you find yourself in, so that you may prevail. And I bless you to experience the love, the joy, the hope and the peace of God today. May it be good times friends it's a treat for me to get to speak with you today and talk about something that's going to be fun and we have been talking about things that are quite heavy um, for the last little while so tonight we're going to have a little bit of fun with this an exciting thing to talk about on an exciting day for me and my wife Jamie today is our 11th wedding anniversary I believe I've got a little pick of us cute <laughs> This is us, um, 11 years ago, like a few hours, do you know, um, today, we stood on this very stage uh, to get married. Back in those days, the wood was still brown. Back in those days, the hair was still brown. A little bit extra white in both places. But say la vie, that's fine. That's the way it goes. I don't care. I definitely don't care about a bit of gray hair. That's fine. Um, because I love a bit of nostalgia. I am way more likely to look back fondly than to look forward excitedly. And maybe this is like a nicely timed little piece of nostalgia because today Jamie and I are remembering our wedding day. We're looking back to that day and what we see is two people looking forward, excited to the rest of their lives together. And isn't that just pretty much exactly what Hebrews 11 is about? Looking back, seeing people who are looking forward. Fun times. I love that. And by the way, thank you for indulging me with the long read at the start. It's a long read, but it's a good one. And the dudes who received that letter 
got that long list, that long read to remind themselves where they came from. They looked back to see where they came from and when they looked back, they saw people who were looking forward. So let's start with this little thought that we are not islands and we don't exist in a vacuum. Like something, like actually lots of stuff um, have brought us together and contributed to who we are now and where we are now in our faith and are currently contributing to where our faith is going to go in the future. And all those things stack up. The writer of the book of Hebrews like, wrote that big whole long list of people to represent the spiritual heritage of those Hebrew Christians. And it is a long list. So long, in fact, that um, the writer like tags on a bunch of names at the end that he doesn't have time to talk about. So I thought it would be fun to at least talk about one of them. And we're gonna be thinking about why they're on the list. And we're gonna be thinking about how come they're there. Like, why are they so great? Like, are they actually so great? And we're gonna be thinking about like, mm, like, how would we rate them like as a dude? And we're gonna be thinking about if we were the writer of this letter to the Hebrews, since we've got the time, what sorts of things could we write? And we're gonna be thinking about Gideon. And that means Judges chapter six, and that means chatting Judges as a whole. The book of Judges has got this little cycle in it, um, in which the people abandon God and worship other gods, the people sin, and then God lets the bad guys take over for a while, and then the people cry out to God for help, and then God sends a judge to rescue them, and then there is peace for a while, but only for a while because the people abandon God again, and the whole thing starts all over again. And by the time we get to Judges chapter six, we're a few cycles in, and every cycle things seem to get just a little bit worse. So we're a few cycles a little bit worse, but it's the same deal, it's the same cycle. The people have sinned and they've abandoned God. And this time God lets the Midianites and their allies, the Amalekites and the Ketamites, take over for a while, and it stinks, it's awful. Like the Israelites are being heavily oppressed. They're having to flee their homes and live in the mountains and in caves. Constant attacks mean that um, there is like a severe food shortage and famine where they live. So in their oppression and in their poverty, they cry out to the God they had sinned against and ask him for help, which is where Gideon comes into play. Now, I wonder what your hot take on Gideon is. Like when you think of him as a person and his character and the events of his story and his life, like what kind of impression do you get from him? And I suppose if I could put it really simply, I'd just be like Gideon, like is he a good guy or a bad guy? And my money is on you guys thinking and us thinking that he's a good guy. I mean, he's a bit of a Sunday school hero, isn't he? Like very tellable stories. He even has a whole VeggieTales episode dedicated to him, which um, I hope it's not something that you remember or care about because that episode is particularly bad. Um, and I feel like for the longest time, I really wanted to give Gideon a fair go. I wanted to think of him as a good guy. And the first time I ever preached at Rehope or at anywhere for that matter, I preached on Gideon. And back then I was especially keen to give Gideon a fair shout because like he finds himself living in incredibly difficult circumstances. I can't imagine. And then the thing that he is asked to do is incredibly difficult on top of that, 
Let's get a little snippet of his story. Here's Judges chapter six, starting verse 11. It says, the angel of the Lord came. We find out later in the story that that's Jesus. And he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press ah, in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And Gideon said, police, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But yeah, the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. So what are we to take from this? Like there's already a lot going on in here. And sometimes when we are familiar with a story, we can let like prior knowledge affect how we receive it. Like if we already know that Gideon's gonna go on to do all the battles and things, we can read stuff about Valiant Warrior and think, okay, cool, that makes sense. Sometimes we can let prior knowledge get in the way of an accurate read and we let our evaluation skills of that moment just go out the window. And that's not good. If up on the screen, you're gonna see Bloom's taxonomy for higher order thinking skills. And if you're a teacher, I'm really sorry. I know it's the holidays, but my bad. Um, Bloom's taxonomy for higher order thinking skills is a tool that was developed by this dude to help humans learn about how humans learn so that they can teach well. And as we can see from there, the foundation of that is remembering. And if we apply this tool to Bible study, we can see there that it's like remembering. You know, we wanna know what the text says. And then we can move on to understanding. We wanna know what the text means. And then we can move on to applying. We wanna know how we can do that thing. And that's usually where we stop. Like, what does it say? What does it mean? What do I do? That's usually where we stop which is a shame because we stop short at analyzing. We stop short at thinking about how the different pieces of the story fit together and like how does one story help me to understand what comes later? We stop short at evaluating like is this thing a good thing or a bad thing? Sometimes the Bible is kind enough to say that people did this and God did not like that or the people did this and God really did like that but sometimes it just says that people did this and we're like, okay, I've got to value it. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this something that I want to emulate or not? And we stop short at creating, like creating a pathway so that we can do the thing that it's talking about in the first place. Because when we just think, what does it say? What does it mean? What do I do? Sometimes we haven't thought through things deeply enough to actually get the like doing it part to stick. Evaluation is a really, like really underrated Bible study skill. And for a collection of books that is so diverse and complicated as the Bible is, and containing human characters that are as diverse and complicated as they are, feels like we shouldn't snooze on the evaluation skill. So we're gonna give it a little practice here today. And we are going to answer the question, is Gideon really a valiant warrior? And we're gonna look at what the text says.
And for a long time, I read this Valiant Warrior bit as being like a sarcastic thing. Here's why, I'm looking at the text. Gideon is in a wine press and he's threshing wheat and that's not normally where you thresh wheat. Like a wine press is a pit that you dig and you put in all the grapes and you stomp on them and then the, the juice runs out a little channel that you've dug and you do that. You don't normally thresh wheat in a wine press. When we meet Gideon, this Valiant Warrior, like for real, dude is hiding in a hole. Valiant warrior. Like, are we really going? Are we really going with valiant warrior here? Hmm. But he's hiding in a hole. Yes, he's hiding in a hole. Do we blame him? What does the text say? The text says, if you go out there to try and get some food for yourself, you make yourself an instant target. They will come and they will attack you. They are watching you and there are a billion of them. They will kill you and destroy your food and destroy your possessions and they'll kill as many as they have to. If you go out to try and provide for yourself like, and your family, you're putting everybody at risk of inviting death. So yeah, Gideon is hiding in a hole. Do we blame him? He's no mug. You'd be hiding in a hole, right? Being out there at all is brave. And remember, other dudes have fled to the hills and are hiding in caves, but Gideon is in his hometown. Being out there at all is brave, pretty brave, like fair play, Gideon, fair play to you. So valiant warrior, yeah, I mean, we could definitely start to make a case for that. Problem is that uh, problems come and then things get complicated because the rest of this like little, like actually pretty big section of, of the events of Gideon's life are pretty much like dominated by his fear. Like Gideon gives God all of this like, oh no, nah, not me. Like my family is the worst and like I'm the worst in my family. I'm the worst in the worst family. I couldn't do this. No, I couldn't. And we see that kind of self-deprecation in the Bible actually quite a lot. Do you know, Moses tries it at, at the burning bush and we see that God has like pretty limited patience for that but like King Saul gives it a rattle and Jeremiah tries it too and I don't want to really be too harsh on Gideon for this because it feels like it might just be like one of those cultural things that we do when somebody asks us if we want a cup of tea and we have to say no first even if we really want one and then they'll ask us again and we'll say yes I don't want to be I don't want to be harsh on a dude for that and but all of this like testing God stuff like a lot that feels like a whole thing, and it doesn't feel like a valiant warrior thing. And Gideon and God start doing this like little dance where Gideon will test God, and then God proves himself, and then Gideon goes and does the thing that he should have just done in the first place. And in this, in this case, Gideon makes God hang around for a bit while he goes to prepare a gift and then he gives God the gift and then God proves himself. And to be fair to Gideon, the gift that he offers this stranger who he hasn't realized is God yet, he offers him meat and bread and broth. He offers him food in the middle of a giant food shortage. You kind of have to say that's a pretty gutsy, faithy thing to do. Actually, fair play for that one as well, Gideon. And God does prove himself and Gideon realizes that this is God and he thinks, yo, I better go and do that thing that he asked me to do. And he does go, he destroys his own father's um, like altar to Baal 
and his own father's Asherah pole, and he builds an altar to Yahweh, and he sacrifices on it. He ruins and destroys idolatry in his hometown, and he reestablishes the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, in his hometown. And fair. He did it under the cover of night, but he's going to know that he's going to get caught straight away. What do you think? They're going to wake up in the morning and not notice that it's there. And he gets caught straight away in the morning. But God keeps him safe from the people in his town who wanted to kill him. And if I want to be critical of Gideon because he's so scared all the time, and sometimes I do, I've still got to conclude that a dude gets the job done. Yes, he tests God, and God proves himself And then Gideon does the thing and he learns that he can trust God. So you'd think that he's learned that. So he's going to trust God forever, no matter what God asks him to do. Right? Right. Not quite. Because it's time to fight the bad guys. And Gideon tests God again and again. And he puts this fleece down on the ground and he's like, right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make the fleece wet, but the ground not wet with the morning dew. And God's like, okay, I'll do it. And Gideon's like, well, actually, that's not enough. Like, let's run it again, but let's run it in reverse. And God's like, okay, fine. And he does it. And then Gideon's like, right, okay, I'll go and I'll fight the bad guys. And he goes to fight the bad guys, even though God reduces the size of his army from 32,000 people to 300 people. And yo, that is a drop by the way, and they're up against 135,000 men. So like, yo, good luck, Gideon. I can see why you are scared. And he is scared, and we know that because God tells him straight up, if you go to fight them, like you will win, I will win for you, you will win. But if you're still a bit scared, you can take your servant, you go up the hill, do a little spying on them, and he takes the servant, and he goes up the hill, and he does a little spying on them. And when he's there, he hears one of the bad guys say, yo, I had this dream, and, and the other bad guy's like, I know what that means. That means that Gideon is going to win. And then all of a sudden, Gideon is filled with faith, and he's like, right, we're going to go, and we're going to attack the bad guys. And great, he does it. But he's always scared And he always tests God and then God always proves himself. And you get the picture here that God sees that Gideon is a valiant warrior. Maybe a little bit more than Gideon sees that Gideon is a valiant warrior. And he's just got to push him over the line every time. He's like, come on, dude, like get it done. You know that we can get this done. Get it done. (sighs) He's scared. But he overcomes his fear. He sees what God is doing. He trusts God and he steps into faith. He steps into what the writer of the Hebrews said was the reality of what was hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. We know Gideon had faith that God was gonna deliver the victory because he went against all of the odds, so like laughably outnumbered. And he went. Gideon chose faith over fear. He saw the challenges, he felt them, but he overcame his fear every time and he was obedient. And I have to say, I kind of respect that. Like, I've got to respect that. I'd love that to be something that I could claim for myself. I'd love that to be something that you could say about yourself whenever you find yourself facing like what seemed to be like impossible circumstances that you choose faith and you step into it with God and you overcome. And that's the end of Gideon's story. 
according to most Sunday school tellings. And I can kind of get it, because after that, things get messy. Really messy. After that, Gideon seems to have this like weird personality transplant where this like little like timid scared man just seems to go on this like power trip and like there's all this like anger burning up inside him and he's mad at the lads from Ephraim but that seems to get cleared up pretty quick and then he beefs with the men from Sakoth and Penuel for not helping him. Then he makes like all these threats about whenever he's finished with his battle, he's gonna come back and torture them and like tear down their towns. And we're like, Gideon, like where does this come from? Like don't do that. And he's just like, why don't I do it anyway? And then he goes back and he just does it anyway. He tortures them and he tears down their town and he kills all the men of Peniel. And we're just like, where did this come from? Like, where did the little scared Gideon that I was looking down on a minute go? I kind of missed that guy. He was a good guy, right? Where did this guy come from? And just when you think it's not going to get any worse than this, he just goes and undoes all of the good that he's done and completely ruins everything that he has accomplished. Right, get this, we're gonna read, and this kind of captures Gideon for me, that he starts off great, and then things get wild. Judges 8, starting verse 22, says, then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. Like, all right, Gideon, like, good one. Fair play, mate. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Dun, dun, dun. Then he said to them, Let me make a request of you. Everyone, give me an earring from his plunder. And now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We agree to give them to you. So they spread out a cloak, and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. And the weight of the gold earrings he requested was 43 pounds of gold. And for the record, I checked this morning. Um, if you were to buy that amount of gold today, this morning, it would have cost you 949,443 pounds and 17 pence. Like we're talking gold up in here. In addition, to the crescent ornaments, the ear pendants, the purple garments on the kings of Midian, and the chains on the neck of the camels, Gideon made an ephod from all this. And he put it up in Ophrah, his hometown, and then all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hand of their enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Zerubbabel, that's Gideon, for all the good things he had done for Israel. Look, all the gold. As near as makes no difference, a million pounds of gold. And Gideon started off the things that he was doing, his judging, by destroying idol worship in his hometown and reestablishing the worship of Yahweh. And he ends it up by making an idol out of earrings, which all sounds a little bit too golden calfy for my comfort 
and setting it up in his hometown so that the people worship and they, and they forget about the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Like, are things better after Gideon than they were before? Are they all like just the same? It doesn't look good. And I mentioned in the past that I wanted to give Gideon a fair go. Um, that was definitely true then. And then I went through this phase of just thinking that Gideon was the worst. One time I remember like being in a seminary class when I lived in Portland and we were talking about Gideon. And I let my feelings be known, as is my way. And I projected them out there as if they are fact. And I was like, I would give Gideon four and a half out of ten. And everyone was like, four and a half out of ten? Really? Like, four and a half out of ten? I was like, yeah, four and a half out of ten. Think about it. He did this, and it was good for a minute, but his whole lasting legacy is idol worship. He blew it. Four and a half out of ten. And then my buddy's like, oh, I named my son after Gideon. (laughs) 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 Maybe four out of ten, four and a half out of ten is too harsh. Maybe it's too harsh, but this ending does make it really hard for you to give Gideon a fair shot. Things is bad, and you know, like, like all's well that ends well. Well, is the opposite true? Like, does all stink, the ends stink? Because this ends stink. I don't know what to do, but here's what I'm taking away from this. That being faithful to the end counts. Faithfulness to the end counts for something. It's important, it's brutal when a life lived well ends poorly. It truly is. And it happens all too often. And for Gideon, like he showed faith when he needed to. But it seems like the continuation of that, like the faithfulness part of it, just evaded him. And what could have been a legit legacy of the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, for him and for everyone after him, ended up being a legacy of idolatry. Brutal. I really, after reading this, think, "Mm, I don't know if I want to give him a fair shout. But then this last verse in this little section gets me, saying they, like the Israelites, did not show kindness to Gideon for all the good things that he had done for Israel. And the Bible is not saying this like it is a good thing. So I'm evaluating though, like should they have shown him kindness after him ending so badly? Does it still work these days that you get three strikes and you're out? Like how many second chances do you get? Kind of feels like sometimes you get one strike and you're out. You make one strike and you're toast. One mistake, you're gone. I don't know if it should be like that either, but I know that sometimes mistakes that people make are worth a billion strikes and you're out, and there are things that just cannot fly. Doesn't this feel like one of those things that Gideon did? I don't know. I, like, yeah, I think so. But then I think this final verse makes me think that I shouldn't throw away everything good that Gideon did because, like, in my punkness, sometimes I think four and a half out of ten. He did show a bunch of faith in doing the good that he did And he makes the list in Hebrews. He makes the hall of fame in Hebrews. That's got to count for something. And how does he end up in that list after he ended so badly? Well, the writer of the Hebrews does seem 
to be placing more of an emphasis on the good that the people did than their mistakes. Doesn't mention any of the mistakes that any of the other people made either. Like, well, why not? Laura read something for us um, just before our pre-service prayer meets in from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 10. The thing that the dude has just been chatting about, Jesus' sacrifice once for all, it's dealt with and your sins are remembered no more. How does a dude end up on this list? How could the writer of the Hebrews be like, oh, he's pretty good, but he's not actually that good whenever his sins are dealt with and remembered no more? That's just so beautiful, so beautiful. And I wonder what the writer of the Hebrews would have to say about Gideon if he had had the time, or she had had the time, I don't know. Maybe they would say something like, by faith, Gideon overcame his fears and delivered the Israelites from the hands of their enemies. By faith, he saw the victory that God would achieve in impossible circumstances. Maybe they would have said something like that. I don't know, I'm making it up. Maybe you could make up something even more fun from reading the story of Gideon. Four and a half sounds way too low though, doesn't it? But I'm still like, hmm, I don't know what number I could put on that. So I think I'll just tier list Gideon. And this is where I think I would put him as a person. Um, here's my tier. Um, obviously S being the top rank and D being the bottom. I think he belongs in the B tier. Like really high highs, but also just like a really low, low ending. And it's, it, I mean, it does feel weird to put like a Hall of Famer in the B tier, but when you've got dudes like Abraham and Moses, they must be sitting up there, right? And I'm glad that I'm also not putting myself in this tier list because I know that I would be sitting in like the Z tier. I know that my mistakes are many and I know that my faith and displays of it aren't as impressive and overcoming the odds as Gideon's were. I don't want you to think that I'm being like really smug and judgy. I'm just practicing my evaluation skills to see what it is that I might learn from Gideon, from his good things, good examples to follow, and going back to his story and learning from some warnings from the mistakes that he made he did make some mistakes and there's no denying his failures but the writer of the Hebrews doesn't seem too worried about that because Jesus has that one sacrifice and it's done and his sins are remembered no more and I guess a conclusion that I'm drawing from this that brings me so much comfort and I hope it brings you comfort too look your sins don't define you your mistakes don't define you your faith in Jesus defines you and that faith is what like builds and contributes to spiritual heritage, like the big story of faith, the story of your faith and the stories of the faith of the people who are going to come after you. Because it's fun to look back on who came before and what they did, but it's also so exciting to look forward and think about how you and your faith can contribute to other people too. That's what the Hebrews writer is getting at, isn't it? He's gonna go on in the next chapter to say, run with perseverance, run to the end, choose faith over fear, because faithfulness to the end 
really matters. I've got a challenge for you this week, and that is to spend some time this week thinking about your spiritual heritage. Like, who are the people that have contributed to your faith, especially, especially, like, your coming to faith moment? And maybe even as we're talking just now, you can think of a bunch of people that are coming to mind already, like friends, family, I don't know, people in your Bible read-through group, or people in another Bible group, or like, however um, it worked out. When you're thinking about this, when you're doing this challenge, don't think about every Christian you've ever met. Like, just like make it like the big hitters, do you know? So for me, I'm thinking about my grandparents and my parents. I'm thinking about how like my dad's mom and dad were missionaries, like moved uh, to Nigeria, built a hospital, pastored a church there. Actually, my granny's family, she had two other sisters, two of them. Um, lived in Nigeria and one was a missionary in Israel. I come from good stock in that respect. My, my dad, uh, his father was a pastor. My dad is a pastor, third generation pastor here. I'm really thankful to God for that heritage. But my mum's parents as well, good dudes, good dudes, like passing on faith from generation to generation. That's how I would think. But maybe for your story, it's a little bit shorter. Like maybe like you weren't thinking about Jesus at all until you met one person. And through that one person, God opened your eyes to the wonder of his love and gave you and offered you salvation that you accepted there. If your story is generations long, or if your story is one person long, your story is wonderful and glorious and really, really, really worth thinking about. Who are the people that have contributed to your spiritual heritage? And what did they do to demonstrate faith. Think about it and write it down. And then the really fun bit is to fold it into like the whole story of faith. Like starting off from the foundation of the world, the way that Hebrews 11 does, and working through like all the big dudes from the Bible, and then picking up your story where the story of the Bible, like at least the narrative bits and acts, finish off. I like to do this um, in pre-service prayer during the praise bit and I'm praying and saying, God, I thank you that you made the world and going on that Moses or Abraham, Moses, like you gave judges and prophets and kings to guide and then you sent your son. He lived and died and rose again. The disciples and the apostles spread your word across Europe, even reaching Ireland through Patrick. You preserved it across the generations so that even my grandparents passed it on to my parents, passed it on to me. I thank you and I praise you for persevering with humanity and for preserving your word and your salvation across the ages and extending your salvation even to me. You're wonderful God and I praise you. A fun thing to do. Why don't you have a little practice of your spiritual heritage praise prayers this week so that when you come to pre-service prayer next week, you can use them in that praise section. It's really fun. We are going to move into a time of reflection in just a moment, but I would love uh, to pray for you just now. God, we, we praise you. We praise you and we say, like we just say thank you. We offer you our thanks and our gratitude for persevering with humanity and preserving your word and your salvation throughout the generations and extending that to us. You're wonderful. God, I pray that you would help us to see that we exist within this legacy of faith and the things that we look back on, the people, like things that they overcame 
we know you're the same God to us that you were to them and we know that we can overcome things because of your power. Just you're gonna help us just like you helped them. So help us to choose faith over fear and help us to persevere and choose faithfulness into the end. We love you so much and we wanna live our lives for you every single second of it. Be glorified and be honored through the things that we do in faith. Amen.